Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. My name is Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through the exciting papers in the 2020 January edition of the journal. So welcome back to the journal. A lot going on here in the UK. We're really busy. It's a cracking winter. Lots and lots of really interesting pathology, lots of really exciting cases going on, but also pretty tough gig at the moment. So what have we got out there in the EMJ that's going to keep you excited, interested and motivated to continue in emergency medicine? Because it's still a great specialty, still a lot of fun, still loads of things to do and lots of really great medicine to uh, produce and deliver. So I'm going to start off with something which is really common. It's chest pain and it's something which I've got an interest in. And Rick Boddy, one of our co-editors, is also very heavily involved in this. And it's about decision aids in coronary artery disease. Now, I think we've pretty much established now that there's the way to deal with coronary artery disease or suspected acute coronary syndrome, should I say, in the emergency department is to use some form of risk scoring together with biomarkers. In in my case, that's high-sensitive troponins. I know that's not used all over the world, but high-sensitive troponin with a risk stratification score is a way of getting a good post-test score, which can allow you to then decide what to do with the patient. It all seems very logical. But there's quite a few out there, and it's a little bit unsure about which is best. So Rick and colleagues have looked at the TMAX, the HEART, the TIMI, and the EDAX score across a 1,000 patients. So they've looked at which one of these performs the best. And it's quite interesting. To me, the most interesting thing is the fact that there is a difference in performance. Overall, TMAX was best, with EDAX maybe a close second. And both of these were better than TIMI or HEART. Now, I think that's great because I've published with Rick on the TMAX score. So I've got a massive conflict of interest here and I quite freely admit that. But I do like the TMAX score and I think there's now evidence that that and together with EDAX, which is pretty damn close actually, are probably the ones that we should be using in the sort of cohorts that we see in our emergency departments in any case. So despite my conflict of interest, I really do want you to go and have a read of this paper and have a think about what you're doing in your emergency department. And in particular, think about what it is that you're trying to do with your ACS scores. For us, it's about delivering a score which will not only tell you whether somebody does or doesn't have myocardial damage, it's more about telling you what the risk is and getting that into percentage terms and then deciding what to do with those patients and have a strategy to go on beyond that. So this is a first point of call for us comparing the four scores. I think it's brilliant work, but I am heavily biased. Have a look at it. It's a big part of your workload. Okay, so with that in mind, we'll go on and speak to another paper, also from Manchester. Here in Manchester, we're doing a lot of great research up here. And that's from Dan Horner and his colleagues looking at the evidence for thromboprophylaxis in lower limb immobilization. And this is something which Dan has been working on for a long period of time, right back to when he was a registrar. And he's now a professor with the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. So he's done a great job. And he's shown that there is a significant risk of a a clinically important DVT with um, patients if you immobilize the lower limb. And the evidence for treatment is pretty good around that. But again, you really should be combining it with some form of risk assessment score because not everybody will need it. And certainly some patients are at really high risk and therefore you best really get them onto prophylaxis pretty quick. So the bottom line is that we should be doing this, but it's not always done. We need to get involved with our hematology, our orthopedic and our pharmacy colleagues to choose which strategy we need to adopt locally. And interestingly, um, although there's no particular gold standard score. So in comparison to the previous study, there doesn't seem to be a couple of scores which are performing better than others, possibly because there isn't great evidence out there. But also that there isn't actually that great evidence at the moment for the use of the 
direct oral anticoagulants, the DOACs. But I know that many people are using these. So that's also an interesting area of practice. And I suspect we'll see more evidence coming out around that over the next few years. Then we're going to have a look at a paper from uh, Asher and colleagues looking at airway hemorrhage using mechanical CPR. And this is something I saw fairly recently, so it's quite moot for me. Um, in a patient who's in cardiac arrest, um, the Lucas is on, and they had quite significant upper airway bleeding, which would not seen a huge amount. But actually, in this review, they've gone back and had a look and seen that the incidence is actually quite high. And this is in keeping with some of the other concerns that we've got around the complications of mechanical CPR. And I think if you've seen it in practice, you'll realise that it does feel very aggressive, particularly with devices like the Lucas. Now, there is evidence out there, as you know, that there isn't a huge difference in outcomes in terms of the use of mechanical versus manual CPR. And that's been a question for a long period of time. And one of the things that's been in that is whether or not the mechanical CPR actually might cause injury and so balance out the potential benefits from the improved quality of the CPR. So this is an interesting one to look at, particularly if you're either recently adopting, using or thinking of adopting uh, a device such as a mechanical CPR. And that there are advantages. I mean, in terms of managing the team, in terms of avoiding back injury in our colleagues, then I think there's a good argument for these sort of things. But we do have to be mindful that they do have the potential risk for injury, both in the airway and also in abdominal injury, which is described in other papers. So that's quite an interesting read. Now, next paper I want to talk about is around the use of FAST in abdominal trauma. Now, I'm going to admit, I'm a bit sceptical about this for a long period of time. And I wrote a blog post in another place um, many years ago saying that I'm not sure that FAST actually makes that much of a difference in that many patients. Because if a trauma patient comes in through the, the door and they're clearly moribund with an abdominal injury and they've got a knife sticking in them, then they're going straight to theatre. And if they're stable, I'm taking them to CT. And we're much better at getting people through CT these days than, than we were in the past. So I felt that there's, there's probably a relatively small number of patients who might benefit from an ED fast that would me really be a game changer in terms of the decision making. Now, that's my view. I know lots of other people disagree with me. Now, there is a paper this month in the journal by Kondo et al. from Japan looking at 9,000 patients comparing outcomes depending on whether the patients had fast or CT first. Now, in this paper, there's no difference in outcome for the patients. Clearly, clearly caveats in that retrospective design. They're notorious for confounders and bias. So, you know, why did some patients get a fast first? Why did some patients get a CT first? It wasn't randomized. But it does it does seem to suggest, and, and this is a cohort of patients who are just the hemodynamically stable ones, so not the ones where I think it might make a difference, the unstable patients where you're making a decision about IR or 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 CT. That, 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 that Those group of patients are taken out. So in this study, they didn't really find a difference. So perhaps FAST has a less useful, you know, functionality in this group of patients. And we certainly perhaps shouldn't be wasting a huge amount of time doing it if it's going to delay us getting to either definitive care or to the CT scanner. But lots of confounders, read the paper, make your own mind up. Sticking on the trauma theme, we've got a paper from Robert et al. looking at the TARN database and around adolescent trauma and particularly looking at the incidence and etiology of trauma in UK adolescents, defined in this paper as aged between 16 and 24, which interestingly in the UK means that it straddles those attending paediatric departments, because we take the peds up to um, 16, and then the adults above. Now in the US, it definitely straddles it. In fact, it doesn't straddle it in the UK, it straddles in the US because in, in other places because they take them up to 18. And then in other parts of the world, then paediatric emergency medicine only goes up to 12. It's, it's confusing. So you have to always look at the data when you're looking at papers like this. 
Anyway, what they found is a rising number of cases reported in this age group, which is against what we've seen in other trends in other age groups. So although road traffic collisions remain the highest cause, there seems to be a disproportionate increase in knife-related injuries, which certainly reflects my experience here in Manchester. And um, there's also worrying levels of self-harm, actually, in the database and increases in mortality amongst those with known underlying psychiatric illness. So this is an observational study, essentially from the Tarn database. So it doesn't tell us what to do, but I think these trends are really concerning. It fits with what we're seeing and feeling in the emergency departments and in the press. And I think from a public health perspective, we need to start thinking about how we might mitigate and maybe challenge these trends. So worrying signs there for adolescents, which is a tricky time of life at the best of times. Next paper is a little bit different. It's about the iatrogenic hypoglycemia in treating hyperkalemia. Now, I don't know what it is, but I seem to be treating a lot more hyperkalemics in the emergency department these days. Maybe it's because I didn't spot it before. It might be the case. I don't know. But we seem to be doing it a lot more. And I guess most people, certainly in the UK, and I, I guess it's probably fairly international, would be using the 10 units of insulin together with 50 mils of 50% dextrose as the treatment for hyperkalemia, or one of the treatments for hyperkalemia, should I say. It's been around for ages. I think I did it when I was a medical student. And it's sort of fairly standard, but are there complications with it? Well, one of them is potentially hyperglycemia. And whether or not we've got that sort of proportionality of the dextrose load to the insulin right in these patients, because remember what you're doing is using the insulin to drive the potassium into cells and the dextrose there is just to make sure they don't go hyperglycemic. So Al Jabri and colleagues have reviewed 90 patients undergoing treatment to ask whether hyperglycemia occurs post-infusion. And it's actually quite surprising. A fifth, roughly a fifth of the patients had an evidence of hyperglycemia and one in 20 suffered quite severe symptoms. So that was quite interesting to me. And particularly because the, the hyperglycemic episodes could occur quite a long time after the infusion, up to several hours later. So I think this is good evidence that we need to be cautious about it. We need to keep monitoring it and we just need to maybe have a little think about whether we've got these proportionalities right and maybe, maybe adjust for our patients, depending on whether we think they're at risk of a hyperglycemic episode later. Although this paper doesn't actually tell us which ones of those patients would that would be. Right. Now, there's a really good paper on sleep deprivation ED. Now, I think it's great because I'm really interested in sleep at the moment, partly from the work of Mark Farquhar, who's a London-based uh, sleep consultant, and also a great book called Why We Sleep. If you want a, re a book recommendation for Christmas, take that one out. Now, sleep deprivation ED, I mean, if you work nights there, you know how awful it is, how noisy it is, how difficult it is. What about the patients? Well, nice study here from Prenderville et al. in Ireland, looking at sleep deprivation for those patients who are stuck in the ED, which is a big problem in Ireland at the moment, and also in the UK. And unsurprisingly, they found that those patients staying overnight in the ED had a much poorer sleep experience than those that made it to a ward. Now, again, if you read that book, Why We Sleep, you'll realise just how important sleep is for physiological health and for recovery. Now, our patients are coming into hospital, hopefully, to recover. And then if you put an added burden on top of them in terms of boarding and sleeping and sleep deprivation, then it makes you wonder whether we're doing the right things for our patients. And as we know that keeping patients in the ED, overcrowded EDs, increases mortality, and this may be one small, tiny little element that might contribute to that. Although, again, this is an observational paper. It doesn't prove that. It's just me surmising about what might be happening. And then finally, I want to leave you on a good and happy note. A really interesting, quite funny article, actually, from a whole range of people. So um, Charlie Reynard, who again is here in Manchester, and Rick Boddy, Tarja San and others have thought about 
how we sort of conceptualize emergency medicine and why we shouldn't focus on the negatives. And I think that's something that we try very much not to do in the EMJ. So we look at the positives. There's amazing things that we do. I had a brilliant shift last night, did amazing stuff and um, you know, made a real difference and had a really good time with the staff. So this is based on a Native American legend called the Good Wolf. And they argue that there is still much to be grateful for in what we do and in whom we serve. And I think it's a really timely reminder for all of us to reflect on how much emergency medicine contributes to society and how much good we do. So with that happy thought, with those great wishes, I hope you have a fabulous January. I hope you had a great Christmas and New Year and we will see you soon. Enjoy your emergency medicine and keep listening and reading and posting and Twittering and all those other things that you do. Bye bye. <laughs>